Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Canines Talking Sense. Before we get into this episode, I want to take a second here and thank all of you guys uh, for all the great support you have given over the past couple of years and more recently on the uh, uh, season three episodes that have come out so far. Really good feedback. So please keep uh, liking and giving us those four or five star ratings. I forget which one it is, uh, depending on the format you're at. Uh, it's been really helpful and helps us kind of move up the rating system here on podcasts. And I hope everybody's kind of getting back out there and doing some detection work, whether it be in small training groups or whether it be in the competition format. Uh, those professionals out there finally getting allowed to travel a little bit, attend some seminars here and there. So I hope the podcast is sometimes your good uh, go-to for a travel and listening to or you're on that midnight shift and you're bored and this ends up giving you some uh, uh, needed information and or entertainment, depends on who we have on. So I, I hope uh, you guys continue to do that. Um, some additional updates. Um, I just got back from uh, Minnesota, which was a great seminar, but holy cow, really cold. Negative 21 on one of the days I was out there. I bless all of you guys that can live through that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm sure you probably feel the same way about me during the summertime here in Las Vegas. Many do not... Uh, really enjoy the 100 plus degree weather that we get continually for a few months out here. So it's just the reverse, but wow, uh, a great seminar. There has been uh, lots of uh, bookings uh, for seminars. So stay tuned or just go to the FordK9.com website. Uh, you can scroll down to the bottom of the page for classes and seminars and kind of scroll through the calendar there and see all the different uh, locations that I'll be at doing seminars, whether it be the canine cognition testing seminar, or the new one, Odor Pays seminar. Uh, those are those kind of can go hand in hand, but due to time limitations, we typically lock it into three days. So it's either the three-day canine cognition seminar or the three-day Odor Pays seminar are the ones that have me the busiest right now. So I'll also make a new social media post where I will put out for the next, basically now, it's pretty much booked through November, uh, the different locations around the United States where I'll be 
conducting these seminars. So that way, if you can't make it to Vegas, uh, you at least have opportunities to go to something that might be closer to you. So I hope that helps. Back here in Las Vegas, it's been staying busy with uh, classes. We just finished up our first class of the year. Got some new bomb dog handlers heading out to go work their agencies. And then uh, we actually start tomorrow morning, class number two, and our new canine manager uh, instructor courses. So this is kind of designed for those that need um, some education and continuing education for canine supervisors or managers of canine programs. I've put together uh, a class that discusses a lot of different aspects to that. And again, uh, you can go to our website and go check those out. Some exciting news. Those that have followed me uh, recently on social media have seen that I am out testing some puppies. I'm going to be looking at my first set of Springer puppies for me. I'll get probably two Springer Spaniel puppies, a male and a female, and I'll be basically documenting the progress and what I do in training and raising these puppies. Krista, who's the other trainer here, will be working with the other puppy. Um, We may have a Labrador join the puppy group here soon and maybe in another couple months, some German short hair pointers. Um, So I'm really trying to show all of you that are listeners and watchers of the YouTube channel, my social media, how we can take puppies and how we can develop these dogs. And over time, they become a detector dog in any number of different detection dog disciplines. And there's a process and there's not a rush to the process. Our goal isn't to go take eight-week-old puppies and start putting them on odor and all this kind of stuff. We want to develop skills in these puppies, and that kind of leads me to a little teaser here for our next podcast coming up for uh, Podcast 43, where I sit down and get to talk to Emily Bray, Dr. Emily Bray, I should say, and she's one of the foremost uh, researchers who's done a lot of uh, specific cognitive testing on puppies and collecting that data to see how predictive certain types of uh, tests are and how we can see that these dogs could be become working dogs of some type. And, and her focus has been a lot with the Canine Companions for Independence, but many of the same tests that she uses, we just look at the other end of the spectrum of the test results because that's what I look for for detection dogs. So great podcast coming up with Emily. It kind of dovetails with the puppies that I'm bringing in here. Uh, you guys will get to watch me through either social media or YouTube do the various puppy cognitive tests, watch how we develop certain skill sets in the dogs. We're looking at things like impulse control, mental flexibility, of course, drive, motivation, environmental, all these things that are important. But uh, we'll be utilizing these puppies or putting these puppies into our trainer classes so that way those who attend the trainer classes at Ford Canine will actually have puppies to work with and learn with um, as well as young adult dogs so that way you can kind of get the feel from okay from let's say eight ten weeks old to you know five six months old this is what we're doing for development and skill building for detection work and then 
eight months old and older, we what we are doing to build that odor pays concept to the dog with very strong hunting and searching motivation skills, things of that nature. So it's whether it's puppies or uh, obviously the fully trained dogs that we have available here at Ford Canine, that's what our trainer classes incorporate is allowing you guys to go through that step process from puppy to that adult dog and training. So that'll be a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoy that. And of course, if there's any questions, uh, please feel free to email me, um, Cameron at FordK9.com. And then of course, go to FordK9.com website for all the other good pertinent information. And with that, I just want to give a thank you. I got notified this past week that I've been brought on to the committee at the American Association of Forensic Sciences, the specific committee of sensors and dogs, which is basically establishing a system of best practices for detection dogs and canines in general. I'm just blown away by the opportunity to be able to be a part of that committee. Um, My goal will be to keep as much input as I possibly can in the area of what it's like for us handlers, what's important to look at to balance the science and academic side along with the practitioner side, the law enforcement officer or the um, contractor or those in the private industry. What are things that we can do that at the end of the day, we are better at our tradecraft of detection dogs? We don't want to continue to have this stigma, let's say, of anybody else looking in. Don't You can't question what we do. This is how we do it. We've done it this way for years. It works great, blah, blah, blah. But then we don't put ourselves through a form of evaluation or testing to validate various uh, skills that we have or beliefs that we have and so forth. So really, really super thankful to the ASB for putting me on the board there. And I look forward to sharing uh, when I can various standards as they come out because everything that goes out in standards goes out to everybody first. We want feedback from everybody. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what we need to change. If it's stupid and totally useless, why it's that way and why you think it's also great and you hope that it gets done. So uh, very important there. It's like what I did to become, so obviously Ford Canine, we're lucky enough to also be uh, accredited under the IACP, the International Association of Canine Professionals. Uh, our classes and seminars and so forth uh, are accredited. So if you attend those, you can turn those in for credits with them. But our goal is to push that that needle forward, to be better. That's the whole goal of this podcast, too, is to let you guys listen to uh, various people with amazing experience, amazing academic backgrounds, so that we all can be better. So again, Thankful for that. And before we move on to the show, I got to give some quick shout outs to our show sponsors. Uh, first one is Psy Canine, the home of the TADS. Those of you guys that know what the TADS is, it's a training aid delivery device. It's basically this really cool, um, for lack of a better term, small bottle that will ha- has a one-way valve membrane. So you can put your training aid material in there, close it up, Take the one lid off. The membrane protects the training material. You can put it underwater. You can wash it. You can do all this amazing stuff to it, and your training material is safe. 
You don't have to worry about contamination of your training materials. It really makes a big difference and it's a game changer for detection dogs. So if you want to go check out the TADS, go visit the website, SciCanine, that's www.sciknumber9.com. It'll be linked in the show notes. So go check them out. The other one is Precision Explosives. My friend Todd Wilbur has his company, Precision Explosives. They are a great resource for explosive training aids. And they also are the home of the scent imprint pads. So a great training aid that is utilizing real material for canine training that allows you to use this and possess this without needing the various licenses that are typically required for explosives. So it allows you to have a larger surface area, which creates more odor movement and more odor available to the dogs, which is great. It has, it's been tested thoroughly. Uh, various organizations and independent agencies have tested this product, all with great reviews. So if you're looking for an option to do training and to do training with materials that could typically be hazardous in the explosive world, go check out Precision Explosives. Their website is www.pre-exp.com. That website will also be in the show notes. And then last, as you guys know, I love my scent wheels. It's another great tool, one of many tools, but a great tool that I use for doing my odor recognition testing and keeping dogs proficient at indicating only to the trained odor despite other non-target proofing or distracting odors in the exact same setup and concept as the target odor. So it really allows you to say, hey, in this setup, my dog is only indicating to whatever it's trained to do, explosive, narcotic, etc. That's pretty good and powerful in your record keeping that you do this and you do this however often that you do it, but you're annotating in your records that you do odor recognition testing and the scent wheels that Pat Nolan makes are amazing. Um, his portable scent wheel, that's, uh, an engineering feat that I call it like origami for metal, but it folds up nicely. You can easily carry it with you. Fits in the trunk of a car, you name it. It's a really, really handy piece of equipment. I have one. I, I have a couple of them actually. I really, really enjoy them. So I can speak, I can give testimony to that, that I have my hands on it. There are other scent wheels out there. I just, I can't say anything about it. I don't have them. So I, I would love to be able to give more information on those as well. But I can tell you the scent wheels that Pat Nolan has, you can go check them out on his website, which is www.tacticaldirectionalk9.com. So tacticaldirectionalk9.com. Go check out the various uh, scent wheels that he has. I, I know there's also other products there as well. But uh, go check out tacticaldirectionalk9.com. And that's it for the little sponsors I wanted to give my shout outs to because I'm really thankful for them uh, supporting the podcast and offering great products to you guys to go use in your training. So actually, ironically, all three of those can work together. The precision explosives can go into a tad and the tad can go on the scent wheels. So there you go. On to the show. So... This episode is done with a gentleman who uh, I've got to know basically through social media, through uh, 
the various discussion, discussion groups through just collaborating with ideas. He's a great, great instructor for people, and that's one of his primary jobs. He really puts together really nice uh, PowerPoints and things like that. I'm very jealous at times. I'm not so skilled on those things, as, as some of you guys know who've met me. This next guest is really good at that. He's also another person who has been on both sides, professional and sport. And nowadays, he spends a lot of time on the sport side, but his background came from the military. So without further ado, on to episode 42 And again, please, if you guys got questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me, Cameron at FordK9.com. On to the show. Hello, and welcome to this next episode of K9's Talking Sense. On this episode, I wanted to reach out to somebody who I've followed for a while now, and another person who has experience in both the professional aspect of working dogs in detection, as well as has grown quite a bit on the sport side. Um, and I wanted to ha- be able to have this conversation and share with everybody. So without any further ado, uh, I, Bill, welcome to the show. Bill Gaskins, please uh, let our listeners know a little bit about you, your background and what you do and how you got to where you're at today. Well, Cam, thanks for having me. Um, I've been following you two for, for quite a while, and it's a cool opportunity to do something like this. Uh, I was a, an Air Force military working dog handler. I came in in 1992 as a law enforcement specialist, military working dog handler. I went through uh, it's my first duty station at Ileson Air Force Base just as a patrol dog handler. Mm-hmm. So back then, they, uh, they allowed us to just do the initial part of training at Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, got OJT certified as a narcotic detector dog handler mm-hmm. once I got there, um, handled my first narcotic detector dog there in Alaska, and then I went back to detector dog school later. Uh, so about a, about six months later, uh, then I came back, handled several different dogs there, um, went from there to Interlake, Turkey, uh, was the trainer after going through my first canine trainer supervisor's course. Then I went to Fort Dix, New Jersey, and became a canine instructor. It was my first time being an instructor, and I did the airbase defense uh, canine course that was there. Um, did that for, for about four years, taught about 135 dogs uh, that were going to different places. We had Marine and Navy handlers. Um, we were just about to get the Army handlers online when they shut us down. Um, <laughs> and then, then I went to uh, Korea, where I was a trainer there at the kennels there in Korea. And then I came back to McGuire, was a McGuire canine handler um, and kennel master for a little bit. And then I finished up my last tour from 09 to 2013 as the course director for uh, four different canine courses, taught a grand total of 624 military working dog teams in that time. And all of them were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I went from you know, the kind of old school canine training back in the early 90s, where it was very protocol, you know, hand towards the box to... Thinking out, thinking outside the box, yeah. and really figuring out um, how to do buried hides and how to do more complex hides, and using IEDs and you know, or training IEDs, you know, inert ones, in conjunction with hides, and very concerned about all of that. Um, then I got into the sport community um, right as uh, about four years after I retired. Uh, I retired in 2013, but 2017 is when I started in the sport community. I'd had enough of not training dogs, 
uh, got in touch with a couple of folks that were doing AKC scent work. And once I, I hung out with some of the AKC scent work folks, hey, why don't you come over here to NACSW and do that? And, and so I'm a judge for both, for AKC and NACSW. And um, about 2017 as well, I set up my, my business, Integrity Noseworks, uh, where I literally just focus on detection work. So um, I've, I've done a little bit of contract dog training where I've done some detection dog training for a couple different places. Uh, but predominantly what I do is, is sports scent work. Willing to work with working dog folks, but just haven't had that happen so far. So that's where I'm at. Sure. No, and it's kind of funny because we've kind of had a few parallels there in our careers. You know, I was I started off in the Air Force in the at the end of '95, and during my time there was I wasn't the last, but within I want to say it was 12 months or so of, of my class is when the changeover occurred from us being pipeline going from you know, law enforcement training straight to the dog school and then out to our bases to where obviously when they changed it to the E4 and above, you already had to serve some time before. So, you know, I was in that um, uh, time frame where I might have been more low ranking than uh, a handler coming in, you know, that was a staff sergeant or a tech sergeant, but they were brand new to it and I'd already been working a dog for a couple of years. So yeah, that was its own unique change uh, back then. And um, one of the funny things was, I had been a fan of Doc Hilliard's before he started working there. So I was already, you know, I had been reading some of the books that he had out and, of course, the videos by CTS back in those days. And lo and behold, he ends up getting hired and he's been at Lackland pretty much ever since. So, you know, and and it reflects the change that you brought up within the uh, military working dog community is what kind of when he got there. And things like uh, deferred final response came in and, you know, you know, a, uh, a better or more, like you said, changing from, bo- you know, standard cardboard box training that it was back then with heavy, heavy handler influence to uh, more of clear signals training, which he started uh, putting out. But uh, did you get a chance to ever see or do any work or do anything with Doc Hilliard or anything at Lackland back then? No, so I went through my first soups course was 97. And then um, I got left when I was leaving Korea in 04, I got sent back to go through soups course again. So it's been seven years between when I went through soups course. And so my first soups course, we went over to SeaWorld and we got to do the whole SeaWorld tour. And if, if anybody ever got to do the behind the scenes at SeaWorld, it is one of the coolest things ever that I've ever done. It was really cool. Um, but no, I didn't get to meet Doc I, in 04 when I went through Soup's course. Um, well, here, I'll take it back even further. In 97, when I went through, I met Star Miracle, um, Billy Ross, and a bunch of the, the other kind of old hats that were the, they said they were the special ops guys, but they were doing place training before it was cool. And they were doing all these other things. And so my aperture had opened up quite a bit. And my, my trainer at the time at Ileson was a guy named Doug Johnson. Uh, Doug Johnson um, was part of the initial stand-up for the certified pet dog trainer uh, program, and so Doug is out of Utah, and he's my he is my mentor. He's that guy when I think of you know here's the dude, and so he had taught me a ton about uh, like Bob Bailey's you know concepts and stuff, and so we weren't really applying those um, in the working dog community then. Um, so when I went and I saw Billy Ross and those guys, I my I was really open to the concept of hey, wait a minute, we can do some inducive things. We don't have to choke dogs out to get into perform tasks. 
And so I didn't meet Doc, but when I came back in 04, you could really sense the influence. Like, you know, when you're talking to guys like Ox, Oscar Clayton with his big belt buckle. Uh-huh. And, oh, yeah. And you're talking to those dudes, those old hat dudes that are like, hey, this this Hillier guy, he's on to something. And so you just kind of felt it and you saw the, you know, I saw it more so um, when in 09, when you started to see the handlers that were prepping for Iraq and Afghanistan you could see how much clear signals and DFR had kind of permeated the, the career field. And you could really see how handlers were really open to the idea of, of if they weren't referring to it as marker training as much yet. Correct. It wasn't, it's in the, you know, I guess uh, in our consciousness as much, but guys were really focused on, Hey, there's gotta be a better way to do this. You know, tossing Kongs between the dog's ears <laughs> to try and get to the right spot. Doesn't necessarily always work. Oh yeah, no, and and I got lucky to kind of like you, like we talked about there, being there during some of that transition and and seeing, you know, I I think I still have somewhere some of the old videos where they were applying the clear signals training in the detection dog aspect, and it was, this was like let's say right at the beginning of uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan Iraq wars when they were like you said realizing that certain techniques that had been done for years were now no longer really practical. Uh, for that deployment or in that real world environment that you had to work in, you needed a dog that could actually work out away from you. You needed a dog that could hold a position and return to you versus the uh, where the dog was like, I'm not leaving until a ball bounces in front of me. Um, right. You know, all those things that, you know, all of a sudden operationally, you know, clearly showed the flaws that the training had. And then kind of kickstarted that that evolution uh, within the military working dog career field to say, hey, look, you know, we need to apply something different. We need to have a way to get the dogs back to us, um, things of that nature. And like you said, you know, the right people, right places, you know, we're kind of stumbling into, you know, the need kind of created the path forward to let's let's find something better to do. Uh, than what we've been doing. And of course, now we fast forward all these years and some of those things that were just kind of starting back then that didn't really have names to them, it was just based off of needs, uh, are now becoming far more commonplace. And and you bring up one of the things that, uh, you know, happened to me too, which was SeaWorld San Antonio. Um, you know, for me, I was out there at that time when I got to go to SeaWorld, was, I was a contractor uh, doing training teams up to go to Afghanistan for, you know, uh, government contracting firms. So, uh, you know, me, you know, single guy dating, I ended up dating a girl from SeaWorld and, uh, yeah, so she got me the behind the scenes tour, you know, that way. And, you know, having a conversation with her, uh, right after she had watched us do some training with dogs, you know, her first thing to me was like, why don't you just make odor a target? And then teach the dog what to, what you what you want to do at the target, and I'm thinking to myself like, what is she talking about? You know, what is I, it, it, my dog hunts and it hunts for this? You know, and, and then she started teaching me. You know, well, one thing you know, have two things out. One thing has something, one doesn't. The one thing that has something create value to it. You know, and we use you know, condition reinforcer. And I'm like, what is this magic voodoo stuff that you talk of? You know, <laughs> right, so right. so she ended up you know schooling me. And right around the same time, uh, Mike Ellis was doing the videos with Ed Frawley on Learberg and using the verbal marker bridge uh, in obedience and things like that. And the connection for me happened right there when I saw what Mike was doing 
And what she was showing me on the detection side it basically meant the same thing. So, you know, for me personally, I started doing that in detection and I would use, you know, my verbal marker as the, the real, technically the release or depending at what stage of training I was in, it was either to mark up that behavior or later on after the, the full indication was done and held, then it'd be the release mark. Um, yeah. but, but with, you know, and then for me doing that and that would now, that would be 2011, 12. And, okay. you know, people looked at me like I was crazy back then because, oh my God, dogs leaving odor. What are you going to do? Why are you doing that? Um, right. and, and even obviously still today, there's still plenty of people that freak out, you know, when they see a dog leave odor and, you know, to them, it's like, well, you know, the, the dog must receive payment at odor. And, right. you know, you know it, I, yeah. And, and I, then I go down the class of conditioning conversation and of course they buy into all that and they understand what that is. And then I say, well, this is the same thing. Does your, I, I, my joke is, does your dog leave odor when the toy comes in? They're like, well, yeah. I'm like, okay. So a condition reinforcer, <laughs> I'm te- Oh, wait, I don't know. I don't know. You hear the, the gears grinding in the brain and, and it goes against everything they're taught, taught about, you know, been taught for all this time. And then the the unique thing is, you know, like in any other aspect of dog training, people with open minds will continue to ask questions, continue to have a conversation with you. And then you start seeing, you know, some of those seeds that are planted in a conversation, you know, whether it be months or years or whatever, people kind of come back and go, you know what, you know, after seeing this on a video or seeing it or whatever, or hearing in a conversation, I started doing it and man, it works. If I just started doing that way back when, I imagine how much easier my dog's life would have been. And it's it's funny, you know, because both of us get to play in the sport world and in the professional world. Um, the It's been unique to see the sport world, and like it always does, civilians are going to be more apt to evolve faster because, of course, they're, they're paying to do training and they pay for a result where those of us on the professional side get paid to go to work and work these dogs. So sometimes when the incentive is your wallet and you want results and it costs you money, you're willing to listen and try things more frequently than the traditional professional who has a system. The system mentality is if it's not broke, don't fix it. So the the evolution is a little bit slower, but it has been uh, unique to see uh, you know, how fast the sport world is adapting to this and using it more and more frequently. And then in the professional world too, the professional world is changing. It's just not, it's taken longer uh, for that concept using a condition reinforcer in detection work to be common. How have you seen it from, I mean, obviously you had a lot of years in the military and then, you know, now the civilian world, how do you see uh, this evolution happening? So I, I think what's you, you hit on something that I, I tell students and I talk to at trials with folks all the time is that first, what, what was always most frustrating as a, a quote unquote professional handler in the Air Force was, you know, you would see handlers that would phone it in. You would have folks that were forced to cross training the canine. And so you would have folks that just didn't have that intrinsic motivation to do it. They were, they would do the job, they would hold the leash, dispense Kong and then press on. And so it wasn't, they weren't they weren't into it. They weren't zealots like you were, like, like I was coming up. And like, as soon as I went canine, um, I, it's, it's, it was all consuming for me. And so, you know, we did, but we didn't have the outlets. We didn't have the places. Once Michael Ellis started to come to prominence and, you know, and Frawley and those guys started to kind of 
share it. Then all of a sudden we had guys that weren't Godfrey Gildai from, you know, the 1980s Schutzen video. Like we had something. And so our knowledge didn't come from a place of, of science, like, like lots of folks that you deal with. It was, we were practitioners. You know, we, we had a certain set of katas, like we were almost like we were doing um, jujitsu or whatever. And so we, we had these things that we would do and they worked. And so they were tried and true. Well, switch over into sport. You have all these ladies because it's predominantly women. And so you, you sh- I've shown up at trials where there's 125 women that I see over a weekend and there's five dudes and I'm one of them all weekend. And they're, and they're very well educated and they know science, not all of them, but a ton of them do. And so you can get into these conversations and they'll talk about back chaining and you're thinking to yourself, where were you in 1995 when I needed you? You know, like, and so they, they problem solve in ways. And so I think what's missing though, and what I started to notice is some of what makes, I think, um, the, the, the working dog folks good judges is that we view search areas through being systematic in how we approach the search. And we, and we view things from the lens of, especially our generation of folks, because you still had just enough where you were walking backwards and making presentations that you looked at everything as a productive search area. Like where could something be hidden? And I think that's the one part of development that I've noticed in the sport world that's missing is that they, from a handler perspective, they don't know what they don't know. It's not their fault. It's more of a, the trainers don't look at spaces as logically, where should I put this hide within, within the rule set? What would make the most sense? And so working dog folks look at it differently. Everything is a search area. There's none of these very well delineated, can't be higher than three feet, all that kind of stuff. You just, you walk into a space and you go, all right, I got to, I got to search this rack room shoes that I'm sitting outside of, you know, whatever you look at. And so I think that that's what I started to see is that the skills that working dog folks take for granted, that, that you spend a lot of time, you know, perfecting as a practitioner, start to, um, the, the, the sport folks don't have them. They have, you know, agility skills, they have obedience skills, they have all these other skills that, although complementary, don't positively transfer directly over into scent work because um, they're so used to controlling their dogs. And so for a sport that, you know, kind of sells itself as, you know, hey, we're going to let the dog, just get out of the dog's way and let the dog work. They take it too extreme often. Like they, they let the, they completely stay out of the dog's way. And so they're missing those kind of soft skills that, that, that you and I and a lot of working dog folks take for granted of step in once in a while and, and help the dog make a presentation here or there. You don't have to present the whole time, but you'll prep, you know, do it once in a while and it'll be okay. The world won't explode. You're not going to melt if you step in and make a single presentation. Oh or my gosh. Do, or do spirit fingers. Yeah, no, you you are okay. So it was funny you bring this up because you know just this past week I judged a uh, a trial here in Las Vegas, and you know day one was elite dog handlers, and the thing that blew me away is the no plan. You know, a, a majority. You know, some definitely came into the search area and had their plan, but a majority just follow the dog wherever the dog wants to go. And it's the blind leading the blind. So they completely miss huge swaths of the search area because they're just going to where the dog goes. And, of course, as I ask questions, I'm like, why didn't you go here? Oh, my dog didn't go there. 
But for the love of God, it's part of your search area. Why wouldn't you at least walk over there? And then, you know, as, and I've, you know, I've had some great conversations with some great competitors and I'll ask them the same thing that you did is why won't you guys at least present something every now and then? Well, we were trained not to do that, but you will use your body pressure like crazy to get a dog to stay in and search one area, but you're afraid to use your hand to present something every now and then. And, and it comes back to, at least in the conversations I've had, is they were told presenting was bad because the dog will just indicate because you present. And my thing is you train, you know, you, you train. And I agree, you know, one of the things I have coming up is a statement that says, give your dog its nose. And in the horse world, it's called give the horse its head so it can, you know, do things. Um, and, and give your dog its nose I want the dog to have the freedom to go and investigate and do things, but I am also part of that team. And if I see a significant area that hasn't been checked, I'm going to at least get the dog over there to go sniff that area. And if the dog only sniffs one half of the area and kind of gets focused, well, then my job is to go, oh, let's get your head over here and go sniff that and then give and then give them their nose back and allow them to do that. But right. there's that fear, you know, based from, you know, traditional training methods that told these competitors, oh my gosh, it's so bad if you step in and do anything. So the pendulum is so far on the one side of the equation where they won't do any type of presentations or won't get involved at all. Not a one. And then we have those of us that came up from the complete other end of the spectrum where we didn't let that dog go one inch without us telling it where to go to. So, so like the one thing I would try to, you know, and one of the things that I want the listeners that compete and even the professionals, it's a balance, you know, let the dog have its nose, let the dog do its thing. Your job is to look at that search area, whatever it is, whether it be vehicles, rooms, containers, whatever it is, look at that area and then ensure that once the dog has done some searching, that you also ensure that other things that did not get a chance to be sniffed, get sniffed. Because numerous times, and I know you've seen it as a judge, because the dog, you know, I'll give the example I had recently. There was a small, like, fake rock against this wall. And the some dogs, just because how the air current was, just blew right on by it. And then went by it again. But n- hardly anybody slowed down long enough to, to have the dog go check it. Well, the dog just went, went by it, so there must be nothing there. But you, the dog <laughs> was just following the wall line. It wasn't actually checking anything. So they they all expect that the odor will just smack their dog in the face and that will then tell them. So I, I'm trying to help through coaching, um, just as you are, to say, hey, look, you're a team. You have a responsibility as a handler to make sure that your area gets checked. Now, of course, in the sport world, what really can get you is that time clock, you know, because, you know, once they hear a, a time and, and, and many have all the extra gadgets like the stopwatches on their arms and things like that that, yep, kinda, yep. that help them out to kind of make sure they don't get stuck in an area for too long. But you have to go into your search area, whether you're professional or sport, with a plan, you know, and the sport people really get an advantage because there's videos of the search area before they even go there. They, in some cases before COVID, they could walk the search area beforehand. You know, there I've watched many times they'd break out, you know, uh, notepads and, you know, drawings and all kinds of stuff before they even got to go to the search area. And if you're going to do all of that work, 
why not ensure that you you execute a plan that gets yep. you successful to to search that space? I I am a I'm a blue. I'm an empathetic dude. Like I literally I don't know how I got here. I'm a cop's kid. Um, but I'm super, I have a lot of sympathy, empathy for these, these competitors. And maybe it's because we, we came up, you know, in the working dog community, getting yelled at and clipboards being broken over knees and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yep. but, but, but I think what, what, what you just said is, is pretty powerful in this is that I've been laughed out of, you know, Facebook groups and out of conversations for talking about a systematic search pattern. And when I, when I say that, that, you know, through hide placement, you teach pattern. They, they look at me like I'm crazy. Or when I say things like, you know, a search pattern, like you said, you know, you start at the start point, do a quick, you know, visual scan of the area, you know, take in everything that you see, the totality of the circumstance, and then go search it and look at everything for productive search areas. And for some reason, you can preach that. Brother, you, you've, you've had people pay to listen to you talk about it. And I've had people pay me to talk about it. And it just doesn't permeate throughout the community it's getting there but it's just not it's not spreading in a way that to me makes makes enough substantive change where the lower level folks are starting to see it at the novice level when they enter or when you're talking your your nw1 folks like those folks are so nervous that they must pair at source that they forget there's this whole big space they've got to search first I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, As with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. 
Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalK9.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel and has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. Well, you're bringing up something that I also bring up is they're in a rush. Why are you in a, in a rush to get to? Don't trial until you're ready. There's no need to step on the accelerator and feel that you have to get into a trial by whatever date. Last time I checked, none of the dogs cared when they went into a trial. None of the dogs give a crap about the, the ribbons and, and other things that they get. They The dogs have a blast training and doing this stuff. So take your time, do the fundamentals, build a solid foundation, educate yourself in the process because it's not just working a dog. It's, you know, your inter- you know, how you interpret what the dog tells you. But then, like we just talked about, understanding your plan, you you have to go, you have to be educated enough to know, okay, what's wind doing? What's in my area? What are potentially the temperatures, you know, of today? Because as we know, you know, dog number five 
has a totally different environmental uh, condition than dog number 40. So the, you know, you, you have to be flexible and understand you as a handler have responsibilities to be educated. So that way, when you go to work or trial, you are doing the best you can do to give that dog its best opportunity to be successful in whatever that environment is. So, you know, that, that leads me to a, a question for you, but kind of besides those things that we talk about, or we just, we just talked about, what is something that you spend a lot of time or you see that, um, and I'll say both sport and professional need the most, um, I'd say help or good advice on when working their dogs. So I, I think first and foremost is, is not being afraid to, to go back to the basics. And it feeds right into what you were just talking about is that don't be afraid to dwell for an extended period of time on the basics. And, and when I say that is um, I've, I've been, again, you know, Facebook matches with the, the keyboard warriors about the trained final response and the purpose of a trained final response. Um, the purpose of the trained final response for the, from my understanding and then from, from years of experience is so that the handler knows that there's odor there really what it's about. It's not for the dog. The dog knows how to sit. The dog knows how to use its nose. So those things aren't for the dog. It's so the handler can read the dog's indication, right? The fact that the dog's in odor. And so when you peel it all the way back, the thing that has the most problems, and Croyer talks about it, and you talk about it, and lots of folks talk about it, and that I continue to see is, is handlers not being able to read that their dogs are in odor and not having an indication that's clear so that not only they can read it, but also that the, the judge can read it. So really, I think it's the thing that I spend the most time talking to folks about is that, you know, have a clear indication. Take the time. You put one hide out, put it in a box. I don't care what you put it in. Put it in a, in a drawer from a $5, you know, Goodwill nightstand. Do whatever it takes, but spend a ton of time there so the dog really clearly understands what you want from it. And you know what the dog's going to do when it's in odor. It's the thing that um, that I think it just happened in, in your, your group today. There was a Navy handler that mentioned, you know, Hey, I, I want to work on some basics. Let me build a, build a Mike Herzig wall. And, and I think the, the, the local handlers that I deal with on the McGuire Air Force Base, those guys, it's the same thing. My buddy Chad Ashley deals a ton with is, is fixing indications and fixing how the dog clearly communicates that it's in odor and what it's and being taught by its handler, what to do when it's there. All of these special videos that, you know, from Hunter's Heart to yours, to Croyer's, to mine, to anybody's that talk about this, we all harp on this thing, but it's the part that I think that hasn't really infected or, or it hasn't been something that trainers have picked up, where in turn clubs haven't picked up. And then handlers, when you go to trial, it's what you see. When you see elite dogs and summit dogs, and you've seen them, those dogs are, are, are better or as good, if not better than any working dog that I've ever seen. And you know, and you know why? It's because they know how to read their dogs, and they and their dogs know what's expected out of them. And the dogs understand that you know when they go into a search area, that what they're supposed to do. And all of that comes down to what you said before about not being in a rush, and taking your time and being deliberate in how you train. Yep. It just kills me when you see these 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 ladies that show up at trial that that are motivated and they have a motivated dog. And they're, they're in a rush. They pass their ort. And, and so they're ready to go. And their dog's on those three odors. And bam, they go to trial. 
and they 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 do ten NW ones before they move on, or they they cr- they crush an NW one because it's meant to be easy, and then they go to the NW two and they do ten or twelve NW twos before they move to the three, and like it's. It's, gr- folks, it's great for the organizations because, man, that brings in lots of money every time you go to a trial. But it, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, like we're bringing up is, you know, they're rushing through the foundations and then struggling through the process because if they just spend time doing the foundations, getting those solid and then moving into a testing phase or a trial phase where you can then see where you're at. That has far more efficiency to it than this because we're then we're dealing with the human psychological aspect of failure. They get so upset because they failed and failed again or they didn't score where they wanted to score and so on and so forth. Then it becomes almost debilitating and then the trust factor between handler and dog changes dramatically because they just like you said, they can't read the dog because they didn't spend enough time. And you're hitting another topic that – you know, you, I had a video that came out recently where I was talking about um, making odor the first priority in the sequence because so often, just like you said, people want to get this indication. Now, this is leans more on the professional side. Professional, just like you talked about, we harp heavily on indication, and then all of a sudden we have dogs that just learn, okay, indication is most important. I'll give you indication. And, <laughs> yeah, there and, you go. Yeah, and they, and they don't – the dog never really got that odor was the priority. So the sport world, you know – spends a lot of time focusing on reward, uh, reward paired with odor. Um, so sometimes the sequence of information is, is not exactly clear to the dog. Um, and then add in the handler who's not clearly understanding what the task might be. So then you have a little bit of a sequence out of order, but between the two, uh, sport does have more emphasis leaning towards odor. Just, you know, there's other things that get in the way. So I'm about ready to do another video, which will probably be out by the time this, this podcast airs. But I'm going to talk about what happens when we focus so much on indication before we have odor clear. And, you know, when the, the, the focus becomes so highly put on the indication, the dog goes, oh, okay, I got this. What you want is, is indication. And then all of a sudden those wheels start falling off because the indication looks great in the very low-level controlled settings of X amount of boxes and this is what I do. And But all of a sudden when we take away the context, whatever the odor might be in, or we take away the odor from the area, then the dog goes, uh, I don't know how to be right. But the only way I know how to be right is give you an indication. And then you have handlers who then create their cues because of all the things they did during the training of indication. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's funny because what, what occurred to me is something that I'm sure you saw too, is that, you know, time. So back to it, if the dog doesn't know odor, they know, they'll figure out other contextual clues to, to kind of guess. And I guess it's where your unproductive or false indications come from is that, so I've been searching for five minutes. I know that at trial, it goes about this long. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to look around and go, well, I'll just indicate. And because they're used to only searching for five minutes or or they like if you've seen I I did a um, a session the other day where I had handler searching for for ten minutes and the handler and the dogs were both uncomfortable because they hadn't found anything yet so they get to the end of the search at the end of that ten minutes and then bam all of a sudden they're like oh my god that that felt like forever was well, because you were so used to you know hitting those those singles that you set them up in training to where they have a, a threshold hide on front street so the dog knows what's up or even take it back even further. 
which are the parking lots. And one of my least favorite things in all of the sport community is the, the hot boxes outside. Yes. And, and so you have these, these that's just for the human. With, that is strictly for the handler to, so they can feel, Oh my gosh, my dog can do it. Your dog can do it. It doesn't need that. In fact, you are creating more yep. problems by doing oh that God, first. Yes. It's so literally, I'm sure somebody has got a voodoo doll of you and me now poking the snot out of it because we've mentioned this, but, but, but I literally, I've said this at trials, like folks are like got to get those hot boxes out. I'm like, uh, don't even bother. It's a waste. No, no, no. The people need it. Well, well, you know, you'd be better served to have one at your car. Well, you can't have odor in your car at a trial. Well, what the freak? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, it's, but, but no, it, it goes back to it. There, there's all these little things that you, that you see. And, and we saw it a ton in the working community where you see guys, they build unintentionally back to presentations and the faults of those. Oh my God, my handler just put his hand near the fire extinguisher. Let me run over there and indicate there because he put his hand there. So there's, but I think where where it, the the wiring gets kind of confusing for me, and, and I've had it explained to me. Um, I was lucky enough to meet Karen Damon and some of the other ladies out here in Jersey that um, explained some of this to me off us as a side of my first trial. But the pairing, it's like they dwell so long with pairing that both the dog and the handler get confused about what's what's the expectation there. Should I pair when I go high? It's it's it muddies the water. It they they care about odor. They all talk about odor, but then they get in the way of the dog processing the odor. And it's just it's just very interesting how the parallels. They're not. It's not parallel what we experience in the working dog community, but but how they they'll intersect throughout the development of the dog. And there'll be a moment where like we all know that odor matters, but we just get there in such really circuitous, just really interesting ways. To where we get to that that realization that well, darn it, if I just train on odor, then everything will be okay. Like you said, both worlds, you know, many times struggle with the same problems. How they got to that problem is, of course, very different, but the the problem itself is the same thing. And it's it's funny because uh, I'm going to throw something else at you. So obviously, in our uh, detection dog world, and this lean more towards the professional side of things is terminology. We 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 have terms all over the place that mean a lot of oh, the same God, things. Yeah. And I saw something, you know, and I remembered from my time in Europe, um, and more recently I saw something that made me think of this. And I think for me, I'm just curious to see what your impression of this is. But so this is going to be the definitions of basically what happens at a conclusion of a search. So Obviously, okay. positive indication, meaning the dog correctly yep. indicated to a source of odor or odor material. A negative right. response means no odor indicated. Right. Negative indication means an indication but no odor or substance present. To me, those three terms, positive indication, negative response, negative indication, clearly, um, like I said, this is I'm curious to get your take on it. But that, yeah. to me, actually says better what we are seeing than the word false alert, than the word, yeah. you know, some of these other things. So it's – I wanted to throw that at you and just kind of see what you thought of those of those terms. But it, I, I like them because I think the thing that, you know, we have the quadrants, our four quadrants, you know, when we talk about, you know, and we talk about positive and negative applied and withheld. You know, I, I think it kind of makes sense. It cleanly is a positive transfer from that understanding to this and that, you know, hey, um, 
when you, because I, I trip up all the time too about unproductive or false responses. You know, when you're, when you're doing uh, berry days, for example, you know, the dog is, is, is indicating on disturbed earth sometimes on accident. It just happens while they're trying to process the idea that odor's coming from the ground. And so they're looking for some contextual cue. They see the disturbed earth, they run to it thinking that, oh, there was odor there the last time. Oh, there's no odor there, but they'll, they'll, they'll run to those spots. So it's, it's not that it's, the dog was doing something. The dog was, was cognitively trying to work out it, what's going on. It sees something that's there. There's something contextually that draws them there. So it's not a false, you know, response. It's a, it's, it's unproductive. Hey, Bubba, there wasn't any odor there, you know? So I, I think the, the way that you described it, I think it makes more sense that, you know, when you, when you talk about, um, you know, negative reinforcement and, and how powerful it can be in training. I think that there's, there's a lot that I, that I try and tell handlers that, that, you know, Hey, if you can get into, especially the sport folks, but I was doing it on active duty too, is like, it's so much more powerful when the dog understands what's not expected of it. A lot of times, because we force them into these neat little boxes of what we expect. But when the dog figures it out on their own, that, Hey, wait a minute, that, that disturbed earth over there doesn't pay me. The smell of the dynamite that's in the bag that's that's two feet down now that's that's what gets me and so it, i just I, I think i picked that up from sea world because i could you can't you can't choke out the killer whale no correct exactly and what you're bringing up is it you know it's how kind of how i picked up on those terms was those were terms that were used in the more scientific aspects of detection dog trainings so just like you said Negative indication, instead of us calling it a false positive, which sounds weird, but a negative indication can be explained. Like you said, there negative indication, well, that was due to disturbed earth. Negative indication, it was due to search time. My dog was so used to searching for three minutes before it made a find, it did this behavior after four and a half minutes or what have you. Versus trying to, you know, like I said, these are terms that we kind of in the industry, I think, came up with that were trying to describe what we were seeing versus taking something like this because as we are seeing in the professional side of things as the science aspect has grown a lot more in that community the legal world is going to look into those you know findings and extrapolate from that to make sure that they can say oh it's this or it's that you know um why, why did this happen well we've seen you know you can't just go off of the handler mentality anymore well it's because i know my dog you know they, there's enough information out there now that the either either through research right wrong or indifferent because we all know sometimes research isn't going to have the best of information but it's some information it was more than we had before but there's actually data now that says this or that so terms is another thing that kind of you know, needs to fall more in line with and, you know, terms that, you know, can say what we want without a ton of explanation, you know, is what I'm leaning to. And, you know, and seeing that, like I say, it was a no brainer, positive indication that was super easy to, to say what it means. Negative response, you know, took me a second to kind of take it, but I was like, okay, it, it does mean what it says. There was no response. So my dog was correct by giving me a negative response, meaning it gave me nothing. And then negative indication meant my dog indicated, but there was nothing there. And the reason why my dog indicated and nothing was there was because of whatever X, Y, and Z were. So 
it, it again kind of cleans it up and it keeps us, you know, from trying to over explain some things. So it would be interesting. I just thought I would throw it out. Yeah. Just to see uh, what your, you know, another professional's opinion was when they saw or they get to hear something like that. So I'll probably post that on Facebook at some time, either before this podcast or so those that want to go back and look at it or this will remind me and I'll do it then. But um, so explain a little bit um, about, uh, you know, what you've been because I I love a lot of the stuff you post because I can tell you do it from a teaching perspective through a lot of the graphics and and some of the really good uh, tools. How do you go about kind of formulating those things and and as you explain this, where do people go to find that? My day job is I'm a curriculum developer for the Air Force, and so I actually just took over our instructor methodology course at the the place that I work. I, I work at the U.S. Air Force Expeditionary Operations School at Joint Base McGuire Dix Lakers. And so um, my undergrad work was in workforce education and development. And then I did my, um, my graduate work was in curriculum development with a focus on methods of instruction. So enough about Bill. Uh, what most of what I do when it comes to post is, is I think of like problems that I, that I see or, or problems that I'll discuss with working dog friends or things that I see in the sport community. And I try and bring it back to things that I taught for nine years as a canine instructor. So it's, it's things like, uh, for example, the, the OODA loop, it's something that's really near and dear to me. It's something that, um, that you've probably learned about that we all, you know, yeah. in the police work and in, in the military learn about, but I think what's, what's powerful about it is trying to find a way with these very well-educated women to say, you know, Hey, you let me help you with this situational awareness tool that we use in police work and in the service. And so I, I take those and I try and, and explain it in a way that makes sense and applies to, to working dog stuff or applies to sport work. How can I explain this in a way that they can use? Because the human side of the leash, I don't know if it's you or whomever says it, but really that's the part that, that I think we forget about. We spend so much time training the dog and worrying about, well, our, my dog needs, needs this work and the, the dog needs the pair or back to the, you know, the, the warm up boxes outside the search areas like those, those things, we think they're for the dog. Well, no, they're crutches for the handlers. And so what, what I notice more so in the sport community is they don't take the time to teach the handlers how to be a teammate to their dog. And they're, because a lot of times they're driving the show, they push, they push the dog through the agility trial. They're going through rally. And it's the handler driving the whole thing with hand and arm signals or body position or the leash or other stuff. What they forget to do is, I don't know, let the dog be a dog. So conversely, in sport, uh, scent work, they spend a lot of time saying, get out of the dog's way and let the dog do the work. And they forget that, hey, actually, then if you're doing that, then you slide into the support role of the dog. And so that's where almost all my posts come from. Most of the stuff is what I'm focused on. I have a couple of friends um, in the sport community that I look as mentors in the sport community, uh, Cynthia Langford and JC Kelly. Uh, those those two literally are my scent work conscience. So whenever I post something, they will literally either let me know that it was right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, and then I have a couple other folks that are like that too. Um, you know, I have Mary Mila from up here in, in North Jersey. Um, some other folks that, that helped me a ton kind of with ideas. And so I think that's where it's at is that, you know, look, I think just about anybody can Google or YouTube videos on dog training. I think it but it takes a special person kind of like, like you and some of the, you know, Dave Croyer and some of the other folks to, 
So explain it in a way that, that makes sense. And so my hope is, is to be one of those folks, just to make it make sense to somebody and, and, and I don't know, maybe make it valuable enough that somebody gets the help they need so when they go to trial that it's, that it's less of a, a hassle. They're less nervous. They're le- it's less chaos. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm the first to tell you, you do a fantastic job. I mean, I love, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I'll probably reach out to you to get some help in, you know, creating some better visuals for what I do. But um, I mean, the things that you, the Winthrop theory, the OODA loop, all those things that you've already actually made uh, presentations for and actually you've actually uh, done posts on that really make it super easy for people to look at. And I highly suggest uh, all these listeners to to find you we'll cover that in a second but um to to be able to see these things and utilize that information and how you break it down is, is really really good i uh, appreciate that man yeah I, I another good mentor of mine too this guy antonio rodriguez uh was a, a handler a rod oh yeah my, my i know a rod real well olive branch canine <laughs> yep he is a rod is my brother from another mother and um he was he's a dude that i i, I look to a lot and he helped me a lot towards the latter part of my career with the canine courses that I did at Fort Dick. And so, um, shout out to A-Rod, but, um, but A-Rod would always say that, you know, look, he was, he was the shooter. I was the thinker. And so, <laughs> uh, and so even though I did a whole bunch of tactical stuff, the, the thing that I always was, was asking was, well, why are we doing that, man? Why, why are we training the same old way? And so, um, things like, like Winthrop theory, when we were teaching that, like it was, it really opened the aperture aperture for me even. And it, like you'd see handlers, like the light would go on. Wait a minute. I need to look at search areas from the perspective of the person who hid the thing. It's crazy. Like it's such a simple concept. And when, when I talk to, to handlers at the, the pre-briefs at trials, that's one of the things I'll say is like, don't overthink this thing. The, the judges have rules. They got to follow sisters. Like literally just look at that and don't overthink it and you'll be fine. And, you know, I've, I've noticed a lot of times that I, the, the ladies will decompress at, at trial a little bit because I'll say, you know, hey, look, it's just a flipping box search. Don't overthink it. Oh, yeah. And it goes back to how we started this conversation. It helps you with your plan. Having, you know, taking these little tidbits of information, applying them helps you with your overall plan to be successful in whatever your search area is and in reading your dog and working your dog and understanding what your dog is telling you. So, so how do people find you? Uh, what's the easiest way to look you up or find you on the interwebs here or, or any of the other platforms that you have? So uh, my, my business name is integrity knows works with an X. Um, they can find me on Facebook, on Instagram. And then I also have uh, Twitter as well. Uh, they're all integrity knows works. Um, and then I also have website integrity uh, they can find me there. The easiest way, though, is to is to hit me up on Facebook. Um, I can I answer questions. I, I review videos through Facebook Messenger. Uh, I'm also I have Zoom. I'm the Zoom administrator at work. Not that I admit that openly at work much, <laughs> uh, but uh, but so I, I've zoomed with a couple of folks as well. Uh, but yeah, Integrity Knows works on Facebook. Okay, and I will put all of that in the show notes as well. And the one last thing before I let you go. I would love to do, if you're open to it, a webinar, maybe even a series of webinars with you on the uh, Canines Talking Sense webinar platform, if you're interested. 100%. Absolutely. Okay, great. So Absolutely. 
when uh, obviously we get done with this, I'll be reaching out to you and we'll start putting some stuff together and doing this because, you know, you know, there's there's been people, of course, listeners that have seen you on various other uh, webinars that have been out there. But uh, I just love more opportunities to share that and then, you know, allow people hopefully and almost in perpetuity to eventually find spots online where they can, you know, even if they miss something live, they're able to go download it and watch it at a later date. So I appreciate you uh, being willing to do that. And most of all, I really appreciate your time today uh, talking to me and, and having this conversation. And I won't be surprised if we do another one here in the near future. All right, brother. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, Setwork, you know, nation, thank you so much. And uh, the all volunteer army that every trial deserves a whole ton of love man. oh yeah for sure the, those volunteers do a ton of work that is for sure thanks a lot cam i really appreciate it brother no problem thank you again and until the next episode of canines talking sense it's okay to be nosy